Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sorry, I'm sipping a, sipping a warm tea. Ugh, with dog hair in it, Jesus. Today we're going to find out whether Paul McCartney, an obscure musician vaguely remembered for playing bass in a band named after some misspelled arthropods, died way back in the 1960s, and therefore that the apparently still healthy 81-year-old dude who walks among us is in fact an imposter who has been living a lie for over five decades. It's the first musical edition of our classic series, Ooh, a curveball. You come expecting the kickoff of the big new UFO series, and here I am dropping in an episode about some long-ago rock combo that nobody's ever heard of. Truly, the paranoid strain has jumped the shark. Surprise, Straniacs! Welcome to the first Quick Hit about music conspiracies. It's good to hear from Quick Hit Guy again. It's a little-known fact that he is an immortal, immaterial being who coalesces out of the ether only when his voice is needed to conjure a short, punchy, standalone episode to give our audience a sort of audio sorbet between the big, heavy meals that are our grand, sweeping story arcs. That's right. No queuing on. No waiting till next time to get the whole story. It's a quick hit. Well, slow down there a bit, guy. I certainly intended for this to be a single episode, but it turns out that we had too much clutch conspiracy Beatlemania to cover to limit it to a single installment, so we've split this one into two halves. We're calling it a quick-ish hit. The second half will appear in your feed on the normal schedule, and we absolutely promise it will thereafter be followed by the kickoff of the long-promised Big UFO series. Pinky Swear. We hope you enjoy these little interlude episodes as much as we enjoy putting them together. We are joined, as always, by the lovely Dana Unicorn. Who is very happy not to have to report on satanic abuse or the downfall of democracy for a change. Yeah, three out of three paranoid strain voices agree. This is going to be a fun one. And assuming that y'all enjoy this topic, we have a number of other music-focused conspiracies, both Beatles and non-Beatles related that we'd be happy to drop into the future schedule periodically, just to take a break from the more depressing stuff. And I'll take this opportunity to remind you that we would love to hear from you. Email us at theparanoidstrain at gmail, join us in the Paranoid Strain group on Facebook, and if you want to go a step further, sign up for our Patreon, send us five bucks a month, and get a shout-out prior to one of our upcoming episodes. But this is a... Quick hit. So we're not going to go through our whole intro rigmarole. Don't worry. He'll do the overindulgent navel-gazing episode-length throat-clearing when he starts the UFO series. You know it. 
There's a big opening skit. I'm so excited. But for now, we're going to take you back to a much groovier time. Groovier, that is, unless you were black. Or a woman who wanted to open her own checking account. Or a Vietnamese peasant. Or an American man of draft age. Or gay. Or A groovier time in popular music, Unicorn. In the sense that during the era we're discussing, you could use the word groovy in a popular song without sounding like some weird tie-dyed flashback. Look, here's proof. That's not even the Beatles. I know, Dana. It's just there was a lot of musical grooviness within the otherwise... You know what? Never mind. The point is, the 1960s were a period of cultural ferment. I'm going to give a quick general warning to all the Straniacs at this point. Fearful Jesseret has been stricken with what might be considered an unhealthy level of obsession with the Beatles. What medical professionals call a scorching case of Beatlemania. It is practically a disability. He'll tell you that he has this obsession completely under control because he can always point to paranoid strain orchestra leader Daniel Arizona, who has it even worse. But to be clear, he will listen to, read, or watch pretty much anything related to the band. He's read the 900-plus page first volume of Mark Lewison's majestic in-progress biographical trilogy twice. That's true. Tell them why you haven't read it three times. Because I'm waiting until I know the release date for Volume 2 so I can have perfect timing on that key third reread. I mean, I need to pace it out so the ending of the first one flows smoothly into my first read of Part 2, don't I? I'm not a fucking animal. Look, all of this is true. I am convinced, beyond anybody's ability to argue the point, that the Beatles are a -a once-in-a-century phenomenon where cultural zeitgeist meets overwhelming talent and luck and artistic synthesis to leave behind a body of work that stands with the greatest aesthetic achievements in human history. So yeah, there's going to be some fanboying. I may even be more digressive than usual, but I still think this is a super fun conspiracy theory, and I'll try to keep myself under control. And, by the way... One other quick program note. In my ongoing quest to find new and interesting things to do with this show, I'm experimenting with AI-generated voices. I've used them in a number of places here, especially when I needed to quote Paul himself. I would love to hear what y'all think. Don't worry, Dana and I will still be recording all of our lines in person, not through virtual avatars. But my current thinking is that so long as I'm being clear about how and when I'm using them, these new AI compadres can add some fun to the flow of the show. And of course, because all of the folks who usually do voiceover are loaning us their talents for free, he's not cheating any hardworking voice professionals out of their well-earned checks. And with that, let's machshow. (sighs) That would be the first Obscure Beatles reference. There will unfortunately be more. The first thing to know about this conspiracy theory is, as near as we can tell, there's only one reasonably comprehensive book on the topic. Though a bunch of quality Beatles books cover it briefly, of course. 
But almost all the books that deal primarily with this particular conspiracy phenomenon are cheap, poorly researched wastes of time, or dedicated screeds scrawled by believers. So by default, our main source for this one is Turn Me On Dead Man by Andrew J. Reeve. The book isn't perfect, but it takes its job of chronicling this strange period seriously, and I can safely say this episode wouldn't be nearly as good if we hadn't read it. So if you want more detail on the Paul is Dead stuff, it's genuinely the only game in town. He writes some other books, obviously, but as noted, they're mostly just poorly written regurgitations of the stuff carefully and responsibly collected in Reeves' book, so he's not even going to mention them here. By the time the book kicks off, we're in 1969, the final full year of the band's existence, and a period which finds them at their commercial and artistic height, having transformed over the preceding seven years from the energetic mop-tops who drove the girls mad and formed the spear point of the so-called British invasion of the mid-60s, to undeniable musical tastemakers of the first caliber whose sonic, artistic, and even fashion choices impacted youth culture around the world. There has never been a group of four young people so clearly at the forefront of Western music, and there may never be again. The strains of being in a band, even one as successful and revered as the Beatles, had been showing for years by the time the Paul is Dead conspiracy came around. The band's irreplaceable manager, Brian Epstein, had died of a drug overdose two years prior, and while Paul had struggled mightily to serve as a sort of emotional mortar for the band in his absence, the lads had clearly struggled without Epstein's sharp logistical and business mind, as well as without his unique skills at calming the waters between the musicians' strong egos when needed. The writing for the Beatles' eventual breakup was clearly on the wall, but as yet most of the listening public was unaware of it. And so we come to the first flowering of our conspiracy theory in mass media, which our author Reeve ascribes to Russ Gibbs' Sunday afternoon show on Dearborn, Michigan's WKNR Radio. Weirdly, I can't find a specific date for this broadcast in the book, but based on context clues and looking at a calendar, I think it must have been October 12, 1969. That day, a kid identifying himself as Tom called in as Gibb was spinning tunes from the then-brand-spanking-new Beatles album. And Fearful Jesuit's favorite, incidentally. Wait, why did you make me interject that? Never question the muse, unicorn. Anyway, he was playing some tracks from the band's majestic Abbey Road swan song when this kid calling himself Tom dialed in to talk about the recent rumors of Paul McCartney's death in a car accident three years before, in 1966. Gibb responded with skepticism. These kinds of tales about celebrities' untimely demises were always flying around, but he became intrigued when the caller insisted that all the evidence the DJ would need to convince himself of the rumor's truth could be found in the Beatles' albums themselves. His interest peaked. Gibb had the following exchange with the caller. And by the way, here comes the AI. Did you hear about that? About playing Revolution Number 9 backward? No, I haven't heard about that. Well, what you gotta do is play it backwards so you can hear the secret message. Those of you unfamiliar with the more obscure elements of the Beatles' oeuvre may not recall this piece, undoubtedly one of the weirdest things the band ever produced. Not so much a song as a sort of audio collage of repetitive voices and sound effects put together by John and his life partner Yoko Ono. Here's a brief but representative clip from the middle. Even for me, that's a very skippable track. 
But that's not the part that Tom wanted the DJ to spin backward. Now, what part am I supposed to play? Right at the beginning. Play the part where the voice keeps saying, Number nine. Number nine. Number nine. And Gibb did as requested, playing the relevant section. Number nine. Number nine. Number nine. Number nine. Number nine. Number but he played it in reverse, so it sounded like this. Your mileage may vary, but it sounded to Gibb, and honestly, to me too, as if the reversed voice was clearly intoning, turn me on, dead man. Now, as we mentioned when we were talking about the satanic panic, in our mammoth QAnon series, the idea that secret messages were being hidden in records has been a meme in music for the past 50 plus years. And except for a number of deliberate, generally satirical exceptions to the rule, for example, when Weird Al deliberately backmasked Satan Eats Cheese Whiz into one of his 80s-era tracks, or the end credits of the Simpsons episode where Paul and Linda McCartney guest starred, which featured a backmasked Paul reciting a really ripping lentil soup recipe over his post-Beatle classic, Maybe I'm Amazed. Fun fact, at the end of that recitation, Paul mentions, oh, and by the way, I'm alive. So except for the deliberate jokes, these apparent backmasked messages are almost always coincidences, as apparently was the case with Turn Me On Dead Man. But Gibb was already hooked on the mystery. Another fan showed up at the station to invite the DJ to listen to another clue, buried at the end of Strawberry Fields Forever, one of the two tracks on arguably the greatest single ever released by human beings. The other side was Penny Lane, written by Paul, unless you believe this conspiracy piffle, in which case I guess it was written by somebody else who sounds exactly like Paul. As requested, Gibb played a clip from the end of the song where a heavily processed John Lennon pronounces... In case you missed it, he's saying, I buried Paul. And there's no mistaking this one. Lennon is saying it clearly. No reversing trickery required. Well, that's kind of weird. Certainly, it would be if that's what Lennon was actually saying. But I lied just now. However much you, or I, think it sounds like he's saying I buried Paul, he's actually saying cranberry sauce. And how can I be so sure? Because there's an alternate take of Strawberry Fields included on the anthology series of studio outtakes and other material released in the 1990s, where Lennon says exactly the same thing much more clearly. But that proof was decades away from reaching potential conspiracy believers' ears as Gibb finished the first, but far from the last, of the radio shows he would devote to this topic. And one creative undergrad who was listening to the radio show would generate the next major leap forward in the growth of this conspiracy theory. That listener being University of Michigan student music critic Fred Labor. Labor's contribution was his review of Abbey Road for the university's student newspaper, an assignment he transformed into what Labor himself referred to as, quote, the best bullshit I ever wrote, and it only took me an hour and a half. 
His editor finding the gag as hilarious as the writer did, the story was printed as if it was the God's honest truth in the Michigan Daily under the headline, McCartney Dead, New Evidence Brought to Light. Subtle. And this acknowledged bullshit story, reprinted in full in the book, is the source of many of the supposed facts that the rest of the conspiracy would rely on. For example, it was the first to clarify that the reason no one had noticed Paul's sad demise is that the band had quickly replaced him with a nearly identical young Scotsman named William Campbell, who received some plastic surgery to perfect the resemblance. It also claimed that voice print analysis proved that the two McCartneys, pre and post-66, simply could not be the same man. While this bit as is the case with the entire article, was made out of whole cloth. Journalists pursuing the conspiracy would eventually find the supposed expert who would, in fact, verify that the pre- and post-67 poll voices could not come from the same vocalist, only to have an actual expert later decry these conclusions as nonsense. But what about all of the songs that Paul wrote? Yeah, the later Beatles catalog contains some of Macca's... Who's? Oh, Macca is what McCartney fans call him. Everybody knows that. No, they don't, you loon. Point is, the songs that were written and sung by McCartney from 67 to the band's breakup in 70 are among his personal best and certainly some of the Beatles' finest work, including the aforementioned Penny Lane, as well as bangers like Hey Jude, Let It Be, Blackbird, and dozens more. Labor satire suggests that the group's brilliant producer, George Martin, stepped into Paul's songwriting duties, which, while silly, is at least more plausible than almost any of the article's other details, including his suggestion that George Harrison was called on to bury Paul. Yeah, what the fuck is that about? In retrospect, that was one of Labor's biggest contributions to the historical conspiracy. His analysis of the famous cover of the Abbey Road album, which depicts the Beatles walking in a line through the crosswalk of the street in front of the studio the album is named after. Each man sports a distinct look, Ringo in a very posh-looking business suit, John head-to-toe dressed in white, George in all corduroy, and Paul striding barefoot, with a ciggy in his hand. Yes, I can picture it. What about it? I'll let AI Fred Labor explain. On the cover is John Lennon, dressed in white, and resembling utterly an anthropomorphic god. This would be altered by later conspiracists to suggest Lenin is instead supposed to be a priest, but back to the bullshit. Followed by Ringo the Undertaker, followed by Paul the Resurrected, barefoot with a cigarette in his right hand. The original was left-handed. Followed by George the Gravedigger, and if you look closely, they have just walked out of the cemetery on the left side of the street. Thus... Paul was resurrected, given a cigarette, and led out of the tomb, thereby conquering death with a little help from his friends. The real Paul is still dead, of course, but his symbolic resurrection works fine without him. The piece concludes with an analysis of the songs on the album, explaining how each provides a clue to the new religion the band is creating based on the resurrected McCartney. It's hard reading this thing to get yourself into a mindset where you could possibly take any of it seriously. I mean, Labor writes straight-facedly that the song I Am the Walrus is a big giveaway because John sings I'm crying at one point, and of course, because the Greek word for corpse is walrus. It's not, is it? Nope. But Reeves' book makes it clear that at least some of the article's readers took all of this horse feathers as gospel, and the story spread quickly. 
Soon, there were classified ads in underground newspapers around the region requesting information exchange with other clue hunters. With that, the quest was on, and the Beatles' avant-garde turn in the last several years of their careers offered plenty of weird shit for the seekers to puzzle over. For example, there's the notoriously bizarre 1968 BBC TV movie and album they titled The Magical Mystery Tour, which includes a scene near the end where the gentlemen on the eponymous bus tour are escorted into a burlesque theater where an act calling themselves the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band perform a sort of slow-motion Chuck Berry car crash song homage titled Death Cab for Cutie. Ha, elder millennials. I bet a bunch of you just did a sharp intake of breath. Yes, obviously, this is the inspiration for the much-lauded rock band's name. It has been a pleasure providing this nostalgic informational jolt. Ben Gibbard and co. aside, the reason we're mentioning this moment is because it's a very prominent, Beatles-produced scene that specifically and unequivocally focuses on a fatal car crash. In the minds of pattern-seeking, conspiracy-minded fans, this clue was easily stitched into a broader theory with other weird magical mystery tour scenarios, like the scene where Ringo, John, and George, but not Paul, pile into a tent that inexplicably houses a film screening room where the George penned, and Jesuit insists I mention, underrated, song Blue Jay Way plays over a very trippy film featuring George playing a patch of ground painted to look like a piano, while, among many other images, a male torso with the words Magical Mystical Boy appears on a screen. George uses a projector to place a face above the torso on the screen, even as Ringo makes finger scissors to cast a shadow as if he is lopping the head off of said, labeled, torso image. And so, it's easy to see where interested conspiracist fans, looking backward to this 1968 release from the Paul is Dead mania of the fall of 69, would start poring over this footage as yet more proof positive that the band has been leaving clues for years as to Paul's death and replacement. I mean, they metaphorically cut off the head of the magical mystery boy, for Christ's sake. What more proof do you need? Not much, as long as you were high enough. But even as this story was simmering in the Midwest, the conspiracy was about to get a huge boost thanks to one short-timer DJ on one very powerful New York City radio station. You're all probably familiar with the idea of memes, first proposed by biologist Richard Dawkins back in 1976. It's an attempt to bring evolutionary principles to bear in understanding what makes some ideas, even those that may be wrong or harmful to believers, perpetuate through our culture like a sort of thought virus. Dawkins proposed that, in much the same way traits like peacock feathers survive in spite of imposing a huge energy and survivability cost on those birds who grow them, ideas that survive and propagate must have either a sort of evolutionary survivability advantage, or must inadvertently hijack some of our existing biological circuitry to spread themselves in the absence of obvious benefit to the individuals who believe them. The Paul is Dead meme, then, had a number of things going for it. The overwhelming cultural supremacy of the Beatles at the time, for example. And the fact that the four lads were born pranksters. Especially John, who delighted in providing nonsensical clues for those who sought deeper meaning in the band's art and lyrics. More on that shortly. 
But the idea that Paul had died and been replaced with a very talented doppelganger might have remained a regional phenomenon among Midwestern colleges in the pre-internet era of 1969 if it hadn't been for one particular DJ on the biggest rock station in New York. A station that, due to its power, influence, and sheer reach, was the closest thing the U.S. had to a national radio station at the time. The station we're referring to here is WABC. By the time of the incident we're interested in, station manager Rick Sklar had heard of the Paul is Dead rumor and explicitly banned discussion of it from his station's airwaves. At the same time, a hotshot DJ named Roby Young, who had been hired away from his home station in Miami a year before, had recently received notice that his services would no longer be required on WABC after he finished his current contract in two weeks' time. And so, on October 21st, 1969, having completely lost any interest he might have had in following the station's rules, the short-timer DJ spent a solid 22 minutes delivering the key points of the conspiracy before he was unceremoniously yanked off the air and sent packing. And, uh, <laughs> almost satisfied. It's 22 before the hour at 1 o'clock, WABC chime time. I just got a call from Georgia. Now, this doesn't mean a heck of a lot, except for the fact that the other night I got a call from Indiana. And the whole thing is about one thing. The fact that there's something very strange about the Beetle Paul. The fact that the Beetle Paul may be dead. And I'd promised myself that I would not say anything on WABC because I'm talking to 40 states right now. And there are a heck of a lot of people listening to this thing. And I'll surely get fired if I say anything unusual. But the fact is, folks, I've been fired anyhow. You will not hear my show after two weeks from now. It'll be off the air. And uh, I'm not going to be cut now because it's uh, 1239 at night and there's nobody standing by to cut the switch. But I'm going to tell you the truth. These kids at Indiana University have mentioned something very strange about Paul. And I am going to give you the things that they have mentioned. And I hope that you will remember that I told you first because you're going to hear about this. This is making the wire services, this is making all the local radio newscasts across the country. And I know what they're talking about. It seems that uh, there's something strange that happened to the Beatle Paul. Um, if you will look at the Sgt. Pepper's album, the first strange thing... Say what you will about the veracity of Mr. Young's Beatle-related reports. This has to be one of the all-time greatest fuck yous ever issued to a company's management. Johnny Paycheck would be proud. Young's broadcast is the event that truly broke the story nationwide. As Newsweek magazine later reported, the station had received over 35,000 calls by the time Young was yanked off the air, and by the next morning, the rumor had moved to the top of the news at papers and radio and TV stations far and wide. Per Reeve, this overnight NYC broadcast spurred a conversation between the Beatles' public information officer, Derek Taylor, and Macca the next day. Jesuit would like to note that he has no idea, based on the rather iconoclastic notation system that Mr. Reeve uses in his book, how the author purports to have reconstructed this conversation, as the phone call was apparently not recorded at the time. But even taking into account its dubious provenance, and because he thinks it would be fun to do more AI voice stuff, he's going to recapitulate the dialogue as rendered in Reeve's book here, as if it were a perfect transcript. Ladies and gentlemen, meet AI Derek and Paul. Paul, what's up, Derek? Listen, Paul, there's this rumor about you going on in the States. Some DJ is saying that you're dead. Well, I'm not, Nate. I don't even feel under the weather. 
Paul, they're saying that you've been dead for three years and that a double is standing in for you. Splendid. Then he can deal with John. This isn't a joke, Paul. What's the hang-up? It'll fade quickly enough. I thought the same thing myself last week, but now it's getting out of hand. The Abel officers have been deluged with inquiries about your whereabouts. Well, they can keep on inquiring. Because I'm not leaving St. John's Wood to come to Apple, if that's what you have in mind. The album's done and I'm taking a break. Linda and I are trying to raise a family. Paul, if you would just call the press, maybe the New York Times, make a statement. No. In fact, I sort of fancy the idea. It reminds me of James Dean, young man full of promise, cut down in the prime of his life. This is really not the time to indulge in whimsy. I'll do as I see fit. Look, Derek, don't worry about it. Remember when they said the same thing about Ringo during the Australian tour? This is different, Paul. You wouldn't believe the phone calls we've been getting here. I'm sorry about that, but it'll fizzle out in a couple of days. In the meantime, just tell them all the truth. I want to be left alone, in peace, with my family. With Paul completely disinterested in dealing with the rumor, it fell to the overwhelmed public relations staff of the Beatles' Apple Corps Limited to handle the massive wave of phone calls and other requests for comment on this tsunami of nonsense. Simultaneously, U.S. music journalists made their way across the pond to confirm or deny the rumors, and thereby gained first-hand evidence that many of the conspiracy's suggestions that the notorious Abbey Road cover image crosswalk was across the street from a cemetery, for example, were obviously false, the cemetery actually being a car park, or what normal American English-speaking humans call a parking lot. You're right, Captain America. That is such a clearly superior phrase. But even after several days had passed, John Chancellor could only declare on the October 23rd NBC News that All we can report with certainty is that Paul McCartney is either dead or alive. Excellent shoe leather reporting, major TV network. So eventually, it became incumbent on Paul and his wife Linda to give some sort of statement to the press before the whole thing snowballed even further. And so it was that the November 7th, 1969 issue of Life magazine featured a cover image of the musician, his wife, and their two kids standing in front of Macca's Scottish retreat with the cover line, Paul is still with us, and featuring an interview in which Paul explained away various pillars of the conspiracy. For example, the OPD badge he's wearing in the Sgt. Pepper's cover art? Conspiracists insist it stood for officially pronounced dead, while Paul maintained he picked it up in Canada from the Ottawa Police Department. In the interview, Paul acknowledges he's been out of the spotlight for a little while, but notes that he's been under constant public scrutiny for over a decade and was deliberately choosing instead to step back and raise a family for the moment. The Life interview was the first of many Paul and Linda sat for over the ensuing days, trying to keep the rumor from burning out of control. Not that it helped in terms of the most bought-in conspiracists. For example, they pointed out that there was a car ad on the other side of the cover photo of Paul, and if you looked through the cover of Life in the right light, it seemed obvious that the car in the ad was positioned to appear directly behind Paul's image on the front side, alluding to the supposed fatal car crash, and therefore putting the lie to the claim that he was still on this side of the grave. Conspiracists got to conspiracy, unicorn.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.